1: Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Shirts and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Shirts and Andrew Mitchell.
2: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the Virtual Faculty Lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Shirts
0: and I'm Andrew Mitchell.
2: Well, it's great to be back. I've been traveling for a while and now I'm finally back in the saddle and uh, glad to be here for a live Tech Talk show. A lot has been going on in technology. We've got, uh, you know, this war in Ukraine is creating lots of movement. Uh, Malware brought down a satellite imaging system, satellite, uh, satellite communication system in Europe and Ukraine. There's been a huge brain drain of Russian IT folks leaving Russia for for greener pastures. And AI is making great strides. It may actually allow us to have direct translation from a language A to language B without going through an intermediate language like English. This week we're going to feature Donald Irwin Knuth. He's the, um, called the father of the analysis of algorithms, and he wrote the classic book, The Art of Programming. He's got a very interesting story. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from June in Burke. I have a three-year-old Toshiba laptop that's currently running Windows 10. I've been playing games on it with my brother, and we love it. We spend hours playing the games. The problem is the laptop gets very hot and shuts down in the middle of the game. I've blown out all the dust from this machine, but it still overheats. What can I do to make it run cooler while playing my game? June and Burke. Well, June, blowing the dust out of your laptop's internal is always a great way, is always a great place to start because if anything's blocking the uh, the vents where the, the fans operate, it will cause your computer to overheat. But there are a few other things you can do. Uh, first of all, make certain that the laptop's fan is working. It could be the fan's not functioning properly. You know, Some of the fans are variable speeds. Make certain the fan is actually on. That's number one. If it isn't, replace the fan. You might also make certain that your laptop is free of malware. Viruses, Trojans, spyware, adware, they... They make even the fastest computers run sluggish and sometimes overheat because they're doing a lot of stuff in the background. Make certain you close all other programs when you're playing the game. Don't don't leave anything else on. Shut down everything so only the game is on. And you might want to use Microsoft's Auto Runs program, Auto Runs, A-U-T-O-R-U-N-S, to reduce the number of programs that start up when you turn on the computer. Auto Runs goes through, it figures out, which programs are automatically run, and you can disable that auto run. And it's a it's 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 a it's it's a program that you can download from Microsoft directly. Now you could get a high quality laptop cooling pad. That's pretty good. It basically has fans built into it. It blows cool air right up to the up through the bottom of your laptop. That may uh, be very useful for you, and they're they're not very expensive. No, I've
0: I've got one of those. I I have a uh, I don't play games on this thing, but it's a a computer from 2007 that I still love to use for writing mm-hmm. things and so forth. And yes, it because over time it keeps getting you know more and more complicated versions of of browsers and stuff that tend to make it overheat or start running the fan really fast. So I just got one of those cooling pads with two fans underneath it. And it has worked very well for me, but that's a slightly different context. But it might actually be a solution here as well.
2: Yeah, that is. I mean, because this blow, it's basically circulating more air. So the more air you circulate, the better. Right. Now, now the last thing you could do is it. If you're running low on RAM, what happens is that the uh, the window your your Windows machine sw. If you run out of RAM, it then takes what's in RAM, copies it to disk, loads off more in the RAM, and then copies back to the disk, and it's it's using your disk. Space as additional RAM, and that just creates a lot more work and a lot more heat. So you want to max out the amount of RAM that your computer is using, so you don't. And these games use a lot of RAM. Max out the amount of RAM you have, so you're not any you're not doing any disk swapping. And then finally, if you really if you want to do a major upgrade, you could replace your uh, your disk drive, magnetic disk drive, with a solid state drive. The solid state drives they basically draw a lot less power. Actually, and you have a lot less latency, so if you're playing your game, everything's going to be faster, and that, that may also help. I think you try some of these things. Uh, I think that's, that's going to work for you, but based on what uh, what Andrew's saying, maybe just the, uh, just that laptop cooling pad would, would, or would uh, be all you would need.
0: What would it take to replace the, um, the, the hard drive, though, on a laptop? You'd have to go to a shop to have that done, or do you just have, just plug in an extra hard drive?
2: You could you actually can replacing the hard drive is fairly easy on a laptop. Um, now it well, it depends. if if you if, if you've got a magnet if you have a uh, you know a, a if you got a a magnetic hard drive that spins, it's it's going have it's not going to be soldered in place it is going to be actually it's going to be an, an interface there and, and then what you want to do is get a solid state hard drive that's the same form fit and function that matches the same plug it does turn out like my laptop i bought it with a solid state hard drive built in mm-hmm. you you can't change that it's just soldered in the in the, in the laptop
0: oh yeah so you'd so have to you find might, out if you've
2: already got a solid state if if you bought it with solid state drive on it You may not be able to change it because some of them, some of the laptops that are super thin, they're not really made to change. Uh, But now I don't know about Apple's, uh, uh, you know, Steve Jobs didn't like people to mess with their machines. It may be hard to change the Apple hard drive.
0: But I'm for most sure. of us, I mean, if you really wanted to do that, it would be good to just go to somebody, a, a technician you trust, and ask if it's even possible, and have them do it. Because a lot of us would be kind of a little loath to start prying, prying off the back panel, prying, and,
2: prying on the back. panel. Yeah. Yeah. Now, see some of the some of the Windows machines, not the Mac machines. They actually have a, a on the bottom. They have like a door that you can un, oh, unscrew yeah. and open the door, and you can see. You can see the hard drive.
0: So they don't mind you. I mean, they're sort of preset to the idea that you might want to tinker with it. Yeah.
2: They're, yeah. So I have changed hard drives on machines like that. So if there's a door on the bottom, which makes it, you don't have to pry open the, the, the clamshell.
0: Right. Just, okay. You just
2: open the door. Then, uh, because you can get solid state hard drives in all, in all form factors, and you just get a solid state hard drive that has the same form factor as that drive. Um I don't think it's that hard to change it if you've got the door in the bottom. You're not prying
0: anything okay. open. Yes.
2: The only thing I would uh, <clears throat> recommend is uh, uh, you, static electricity is what really hurts things. So it's so frequently people will will put um, a strap around their wrist and then clip it clip it to the um, uh, to the to the um, to the computer, so they don't have any static electricity. So there's a static electricity wrist clamp that you can get, or else you can just simply make certain just just touch. Don't be don't have don't touch the laptop uh, on any critical components until you're certain you don't have any static electricity. And that's pr- particularly true in the winter time. Yeah, I was going to say, do this
0: project in the middle of July in Washington D.C. You'll be fine.
2: That's that's exactly that's <laughs> yeah. exactly right. We got we got an email from Emma in Hershey. Dear a Tech Talk, I use a Windows 10 computer at work and a Mac at home. I've tried to use uh, I want to use the same USB flash drive on both computers, but I always get an error. I really need to use certain files on both computers and want to transfer them back and forth. Is there any way to use the same flash drive on both the Mac and the Windows? Emma and Hershey. Well, Emma, the good news is you can definitely use the same flash drive, but it will require that you format it in a particular way. Now, as you would expect, Macintosh and Windows, they both use different file systems on their, on their drives, especially on their USB drives. So if you just take the... Default USB drive formatting for the Mac or the Windows are going to be different, and they're going to be incompatible. But it turns out there is a format uh, standard that both of them will will be able to read. It's called Extended File Allocation Table, XFat. Exfat, extended file allocation table. You see, whenever you format a hard drive, basically the formatting, all it's doing is putting a table of contents at the front of it, and then when you go into uh, when you go into the hard drive, it goes to the table of contents, gives you a list of the contents, and the table of contents tells you the location on the, you know, the actual location of where you can find that particular file. So it's not very complicated. So we're just talking about a. A format, uh, a, t- a particular formatting for the table of contents. Well, the extended file ac- ac- allocation table standard was developed in 2006. It was optimized for flash drives, so both Windows machines and Macs can read it, and they will both format your thumb drive to be uh, to uh, in, in XFAT format. Uh, but you just have to request it. Now, it's it's fairly easy to do. If you take, you can do it on the Windows machine, you plug the USB drive into your Windows machine, and then you open up the File Explorer window. You can do that by pressing Windows and the E key together, Windows plus the E key. Then you, you'll see on the f- File Explorer, you'll see all the drives that are listed. Locate the USB flash drive and right click on it, and there will be a pop-up menu that comes up. Now, make certain you pick the right hard drive because when you do this formatting, all the data on the hard drive is going to be lost. So make certain you don't inadvertently pick your main drive; you'll lose everything. That's
0: super important, right there. Yeah.
2: So you <laughs> want to pick the USB drive and yeah. make certain. Just double-check the name, and then uh, then you you basically that uh, from that pop-up window, you just scroll down till you see file system, and then you change the file system to XFAT. And then click Start, and it will format your uh, USB uh, drive in the Expat format. You can you can do the same thing on a Mac, and then you can go back and forth. It's it's extremely easy to do, and uh, and that uh, that basically that formatting method was developed for just this very purpose. We got an email from Jim in Bowie. Uh, Dear Tech Talk, I install lots of free software and I always create a new system restore point before installing a program, just in case something goes wrong. I think Windows is great. Uh, uh, um, But, but, you know, sometimes uh, things could go wrong, I guess. But my boss told me that the uh, system restore point was really not good enough as my backup. He said I needed to create a system image, too, but I think that's overkill. I mean, I'm just installing a new piece of software. Why wouldn't the restore point work? Jim and Bowie. Well, Jim, uh, your boss is right. The system restore point is great when it works. The problem is it always doesn't work for a multitude of reasons. That's why I always recommend uh, creating a regular system image backup to augment your system restore tool. So you see a system restore tool only backs up the critical files, not your user data like photos, music, office files and such. And system restore can and sometimes fail. If something goes wrong and you're unable to recover from a good restore point, you're toast if you don't have alternate backup available. Now, in addition, if your Windows installation goes bad, you'll lose your system restore points since they're stored on the same drive. On the other hand, a system backup, it backups everything on the drive. The, not just the critical system, Setting it backs up all your data, it makes basically an image of the entire hard drive, and it does that on a separate drive. So if your main drive fails, or if your system becomes corrupted, you can simply restore the entire image, and you've got it all. And that basically is the safest way to go. Uh, now the system restore point allows you to do a quick update to to, to critical system files. If if there's a if if a bad um, if a new program installation goes awry, that's always good. I always reset my system restore point too. But then I've got an external backup in all cases. We got an email from Lily in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Andrew, I've got a smart TV, and my mom told me that she heard on the news. That viruses can infect smart TVs, and we need to run a virus scans on them. I didn't even, didn't even know a TV could catch a virus. Is that true? And how do I run a virus scan? Lily in Fairfax. Well, Lily, <clears throat> it is possible for a smart TV to catch a virus, and it's happened in some very, very few isolated cases. Now, I haven't seen any reports of widespread viral outbreaks with smart TVs made by Samsung or any other TV manufacturer. Now while a smart TV is capable of catching a virus, uh, because it's basically a computer, I don't recommend you run the scan because, uh, uh, you know, the viruses are so rare, you don't really surf the web with your TV that much. And I've heard some instances where virus scans have actually bricked the TV. So I don't think it's worth. Why the, would uh, that
0: ever happen, though? Is that because it's a kind of malware that you're using to do the scan, or or just the very process of it somehow jams it, it up just, the TV?
2: It, it's just uh, not a very well written program. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> it's not used that. So it's much. just not going to be just, worth the yeah, risk. Yeah, it's, it's not a well written program. Now. At some point, smart TVs might be to the point where it's risk-running periodic scans, but I don't think we're at that point right now. The big news that, that I had, you know, remember when we had all these uh, um, leaks of NSA algorithms, NSA hacking tools? There were a whole series of hacking tools where NSA was able to hack into smart TVs to spy on people. So, So if you've got, you know, nuclear secrets and you think some nation state is going to be spying on you i wouldn't talk about your um nuclear secrets around your tv because there are in fact uh you know state you know tools that are available where people could hack into the tv they could activate the um they could activate the uh voice the, control uh, right the voice control yeah. yeah the the uh the microphone on it and, i mean some tvs um, may they even have video. on the mine doesn't, but if they have video, they might turn on the video camera. So, so they are used for spying. But I just don't. I don't just don't think this is a big, a big issue. And you know, so I don't think it's anything to worry about. But unless you are, uh, you know, in the spy business,
0: can you be spied on when everything is off? Or probably not.
2: No. If the TV is off, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. But all, all all these smart devices, you know, like like Alexa, like well, like,
3: they're on they're, all like the time, Google aren't they? Home, yeah. All
2: these devices that have that have microphones in them, <clears throat> they're all subject to that kind of hacking.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, and you know, and it's likely that some you know some state-sponsored spies have tools that that can actually get into those devices. So, that because now we're just putting all sorts of uh, microphones all over our house, making us subject to that kind of spying. But I I don't think that's something that just the average person has to worry about. We got an email from Lynn in Cleveland. Dear Tech Talk, I need to buy a Wi-Fi adapter for my computer, and I'd like to get one of these little small nano adapters. Uh, because it doesn't stick out from the computer very far. I don't like that giant antenna. i've I've heard but I've heard that the small size of these nanos might keep it from working very well. Now, my the Wi-Fi signal, I want to connect to the uh, my computer my computer's in the basement. The Wi-Fi signal isn't very strong, but it's usable. Uh, what do you think, Lynn in uh, uh, Cleveland, Ohio? Well, Lynn, you are right. devices don't work as well as their larger counterparts, primarily because the internal antenna is so small. You see, the smaller the antenna, the broader the bandwidth. If, uh, the, the, you know, uh, of, uh, the broader the, uh, It's like a, an antenna is sort of like a flashlight sending out a signal. And if you've got a very small antenna, it sends the signal out in all directions. So when you're at the receiving end, you've got less signal. If you've got a bigger antenna, it can kind of focus the signal. So at the receiving end, you can get a large, a bigger signal because it's been focused, just like a flashlight is focused, so you get better signal-to-noise. So if you've got a larger antenna, like, let's say, 4, or 5, 6 inches, you can actually move that antenna around, and you can sort of point the beam in the direction of where you want to go. I had this very... Similar problem. I, I, um, when my son was here, he had a computer in the basement, and I ended up putting his li- his laptop. The, uh, the Wi-Fi wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a, it didn't pick up enough of the Wi-Fi signal just with his laptop alone. So I put in a USB uh, uh, Wi-Fi uh, connection, and I, and it had, uh, I put a big antenna on it. It, it like, had a, like an eight-inch antenna. And once we had that, we could certainly uh, certainly do the connection. So I would advise you not to get the nano and just get a larger antenna. You can get these uh, USB Wi-Fi connections for you know twenty bucks on Amazon. Just get one that's got good reviews. Listen, we love your emails email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can.
0: Yes, indeed, we will. And next, we're going to uh, catch up with the man who is writing a multi-volume work called The Art of Computer Programming. He's 84 years old. He's not done writing yet. And we'll find out what's going on with this guy in a moment as Profiles in IT comes on to Tech Talk Radio.
1: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT Trends, Software, the Internet, and IT Careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University. Coming up in a moment.
4: The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time.
3: How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time.
2: Donald Knuth is a computer scientist and author of the multi-volume work, The Art of Computer Programming. Knuth has been called the father of the analysis of algorithms. Knuth is also the creator of TEX, T-E-X, the computer typesetting system, which is quite amazing. And now it turns out algorithm, by the way, is a word that's derived from the ninth century Persian mathematician, Muhammad ibn Musa al Kwazima. His Latinized name is Algoritmi. That's what they called him in Europe, Algorithmi. His and friends so just look, called
0: him Al, though. His friends just, called, just, him just called him Al. They just called yeah.
2: So the, alg- the name algorithm dates back to the 9th century Persian mathematician, although algorithms have been around since ancient times. Now, Knuth was born January 10th, 1938, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where his father owned a small printing press and taught bookkeeping. Um, he also was very active in the Lutheran Church there, and Knuth uh, uh, played the organ. He was very much interested in music at the time. Uh, in the eight, he, he also liked to solve very complicated puzzles. He was always... Trying to solve things, trying to work on difficult things. Like, for instance, in the eighth grade, he entered he entered a contest to find the number of words that the letters in Ziegler's Giant Bar it's a candy bar Ziegler's Giant Bar could be rearranged uh, to create. So you take the letters, see how many words you could get out of the out of those words. Now the judges had identified 2,500 uh, such words, and so the the question was, you know how could he get all 2500 or you know could he get you know how close could he get so Knuth took the an unabridged dictionary uh, he digitized it and then he used a computer algorithm to analyze every word in the unabridged dictionary and with his algorithm he identified 4500 words that could be made not 2500 and he won the contest now, by a huge margin. Just so
0: you know, though, so it turns out he stayed away from school for two weeks. This is eighth, an eighth grade kid who doesn't go to school for two weeks so he can do this project. <laughs> and, and he won stuff. He won a sledge, which is handy in Wisconsin where there's a lot of snow. He won a chocolate bar. And he won a TV for the school. This is what I've wow. learned. So, he, yeah. won,
2: he won a chocolate bar for every single kid in the school. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes, actually, a chocolate bar for every kid. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's called a giant bar, but it's not that giant. It's one for every kid.
2: Yeah. So he, he was always interested in, you know, analyzing things. He, he liked to write and so he would analyze his writing with algorithms because when you a, a well-written sentence, a well-written paragraph has a certain structure to it, and he would analyze it. Uh, he also liked music because music has a mathematical component, so he was always trying to analyze things. Now, but he ended up uh, deciding to choose physics over music when he when he enrolled in Case Institute of Technology, and. Uh, and uh, he started studying physics at CASE, and he was introduced to the IBM 650. Which, this is one of the first IBM computers that was out there. So he read the computer's manual. I mean, th- this is so unusual. He said, you know, the compiler, which actually uh, uh, which actually compiles, say, Fortran into computer language, he, he decided that, uh, that it didn't do a very good job at that. So Knuth... It's so a freshman decided to rewrite the 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 compiler code for the machine in assembly language. I mean, assembly language is uh, you know you're basically doing direct conversion in, in, into it's, into into uh, into in, in, into digital into zeros and ones. And he um, and so he basically started working on and he and he basically wrote. Rewrote the compiler for the IBM 650, which is just unbelievable for somebody his age. In 1958, while he was uh, while he was uh, in school, he, he decided because he liked to analyze everything. He decided he'd write a program where he would analyze the athletics at his school. So he 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 came up with a program where he where he put the value of each player based on what they did. You know how many assists, how many baskets. Uh, how many rebounds. He he put in all the stats, and he analyzed each player. And then he figured out which groups of players were the most effective at at getting more points. And he came up with a whole algorithm because he wanted to help his school's basketball team perform better, so he wanted to provide assistance to his coach. Well, this turned out to be an extremely useful program that he developed. He just loved to analyze stuff. So he ended up publishing the results of this in Newsweek. His program was covered by Walter Cronkite and the CBS News. And, and, and I think this method was you know, was, was picked up by some, uh, some large teams on, on, on how to analyze their players. So
0: he was 20 years old when he did that. This talks about a lot of these guys peaking early, but he didn't peak at this point. This is just a remarkable thing he did. He had a lot more uh, ahead of him, didn't he?
2: Yeah, he certainly did. He was really young. He was one of the founding editors of the Engineering and Science Review while he was still in college. Uh, He switched from physics to mathematics in 1960, and he ended up receiving a BS and and master's degree in mathematics simultaneously. in
0: 1960. How do you do and that? Think, you that is some course load. I mean, you're pretty much doubled up on your courses as well as writing uh, some sort of thesis or, or work that proves of something, right?
2: That's right. Yeah, he and then then he went to Caltech and got a PhD in and mathematics. Wow. In 1963 in only 3 years. Wow. Uh, now then he uh, Caltech thought hey, this guy's pretty exceptional. They hired him as as an associate professor and he immediately after finishing his uh, PhD in mathematics, began working on the book, The Art of Computer Programming. Uh, It was originally uh, planned as a single book, and then it got expanded to where he thought it might be a six-volume and then a seven-volume series. Now, computer science back in 1963 was very new, and Knuth read a lot of the computer science papers, and he said, you know, they're simply wrong. One of his motivations for writing The Art of Computer Programming was to tell the story well. He wanted to really explain about computer programming. You see, and notice the name, The Art of Computer Programming. He felt that writing well-written computer code is really like writing prose or writing poetry. You want clarity of thought. You want structure. You don't want it thrown together. And so he felt it was an art form, and he wanted to express this very clearly. Mm -hmm. So he started working on this art of computer programming. Now, uh, just before he published the first volume of that, he took a job working for the National Security Agency. You can see why he would be attracted to that, because they're doing all this cybersecurity and encryption and a lot of puzzles to solve. And, um, but... He couldn't stay very long. He left that position and joined the faculty at Stanford University. He just didn't like working in the war machine. He just wanted to get out of that whole defense mechanism and get back to academia. Now, he he worked on this uh, the Art of Computer program, and he finished the third volume in the series in 1976. And then he, he took time out to work on a typesetting program called TEX, T-E-X, where you can actually format, very easily format uh, mathematical equations. And I can see why he did that. His, his book, The Art of Programming, is just filled with equations. And if you have to send those equations to the publisher and have the equations typeset, it's a lot of work to typeset them, to proofread them and all. So he wanted to create a program where he could actually format his equations directly right in the text, and when he sends his work to the publisher, it, it's ready to be printed. So he created text, T-E-X, and this was elegant the way he did it. Now, he, he retired early uh, because he figured out that the art of programming was going to take so long to finish, he thought it would be six or seven volumes, that it would take him 20 years to finish the complete work. And he needed to work full-time on thing. So he retired to, to work on the art of programming. Now, he would spend two hours a day in the library, about a half hour in the swimming pool, and the rest of the time he'd be home reading and writing. Now, and he would, I mean, he liked, he was still interested in music, so at at, at home he would play the piano or the organ in the music room of his house. By 2011, the first three volumes and part of the fourth volume had been published. Now, by April of 2020, he had actually completed part A of the fourth volume, and he was working on part B of the fourth volume. Now, he's now saying that now the fourth volume He's now reduced the scope of the ARTA program. He doesn't think it'll be eight, seven or eight. But he thinks it'll be four volumes, but the fourth volume will have sections A through F, and now he's writing section B now. Section A is done. Now, he still likes to go back and teach, so he gives uh, lectures a few times a year at Stanford University, which he calls computer musings. He's also a visiting professor at, um, at Oxford University there in the U.K., now, you know, he, he's he got a great sense of humor, like what he likes to do, if anybody finds a mistake in one of his books, a typo, he sends them a check for $2.56, because 256 pennies is equal to one hexadecimal dollar. Hexadecimal is basically... When you count uh, to
0: six, then you go back to one again, right? Hexadecimal. Yeah, hexadecimal
2: yeah. Is, is base uh, 16, yeah. So oh, 16 uh, so okay. it's, it's uh so there we go 200, 256 pennies. now he's he also in between writing the art of programming, he uh, he's an organist and a composer. In 2016, he completed a musical piece for the organ titled "Fantasia Apoga- Apocalyptica." Ap- uh, Apo- yeah,
0: yes. That one, <laughs> yes. It's it's a
2: trans. Let's see, apocalypse, apocalyptica. Yes,
0: like the apocalypse,
2: <laughs> apocalyptica. Yes, Fantasia, apocalyptica, which he describes as a translation of the Greek text of the Revelation of Saint John the Divine into music. Premiered in Sweden, January tenth, twenty eighteen. So,
0: Doc, we have an example of this. This is um. So he he's basically going verse by verse and then you know creating a musical phrase for each verse of revelation so here's chapter 1 verse 10 the, the 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 text of it is on the lord's day the spirit took control of me and i heard a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet speaking behind me and here comes a trumpet So it's kind of a literal musical retelling of the entire book of revelations.
2: Wow, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. He was uh, in 71 he was recipient of the first Grace Hopper award, the first one. He's received various other awards. He got the Turing award. That's like the Nobel Prize in computer science. Yeah, it sure the Turing is. award, yeah. the National Medal of Science, the John von Neumann medal, the Kyoto Prize, all the top all the top prizes in the world in technology he has won he's revered by people as the man who's really put structure into computer programming computer science one i I was reading one man in japan said when he read the art of programming he felt like he was reading reading a poem it was articulated so well so there you go everything you'd want to know about donald erwin knuth
0: Yes. so pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair. Doc is about to dissect a trend that's happening right now, the balkanization of the internet. He will share his observations from the Faculty Lounge next on Tech Talk Radio.
4: The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time.
3: How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time.
1: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it's time for observations from the faculty lounge. Let's talk about the balkanization of the Internet. That's the breaking up of the Internet into separate entities. The Internet goes back to the uh, development of TCPIP, the uh, algorithm that's driving the Internet, that was developed in the summer of 1973. It was actually funded by the uh, by the Defense Department because they wanted to create a protocol that could withstand a nuclear Attack, where you take out a node, and the network automatically reconfigures itself to transport traffic via another path without using that node. So it would be very resilient in the event of an attack. So they developed a packet switching network where you could, where the routing was dynamically adjusted based on uh, based on traffic flow. And it was really designed to be, um, you know, uh, a global network. Now, Bob Kahn and surf. Cerf, when they developed this for the Department of Defense, they lobbied the Defense Department to make this network unclassified. See, initially it was all classified work. They labeled, they convinced, and they convinced the, De- the Department of Defense to make it unclassified. Moreover, they convinced them to make the source code for it, Open source. So all the protocol stacks that were on the Unix machines, all the domain name servers, everything was open sourced and available to the world. And that choice of making an open sourced uh, code unclassified for the internet was responsible for creating a global phenomenon. It was extremely, extremely important uh, to Bob Kahn and Vint Cerf that this be done that way. You see, they felt that a communication network that actually allowed all people globally, no matter what country, to communicate uh, would actually change the world for the better. And their goal was to make the world closer and to bring information to everyone. They felt that if you get information to uh, countries that have repressive governments, it's going to be harder for those governments to operate if people have information. So that was the premise of the whole Internet. And it started out to be that way. One Internet in the entire world. And then there were certain countries that just didn't like their folks, their citizens having Information at their fingertips. China was the first one. China set up the what they call the Great Firewall of China, and they started uh, basically separating themselves as much as they could from the Internet in order to censor information. I remember when when I was in China, I would go there, and if I would want to look at, say, Wikipedia within China, it would be blocked because Wikipedia, as far as the Chinese government, just has too much truth in it, and they don't like it. They can't control it. But I could actually, from my hotel, I could use a an encrypted VPN, and I could go out to some server in Sweden, say. I, I had a number of servers that I could go to, and I would go to a server through an encrypted uh, co- uh, communication line, and I could look at Wikipedia from within China. So it was still possible to... Uh, to communicate with the rest of the world, even with the great Chinese firewall. But Chinese got, has gotten better and better and better at trying to control it. And they are trying to uh, create their own internet pod. Now, the internet has a number of features that, that, that you have to have. you got the domain name system. You know, if you type in a number, you type in a name, it goes to the domain name server, it converts that name like stratford.edu to a binary address, uh, which is if it's, it's, it's either a 32-bit binary address or a 128-bit binary address, depending on what version of the Internet protocol you're using. And it converts it to that binary address, and then once it has that binary address, it can send the packet to that binary address. Now, it's set up now where the top-level domain name servers are actually located out here in Tyson's corner out around Washington, D.C., because that's where the Internet was developed initially, and say China doesn't like to have all their traffic going through Washington, D.C. So China has created top-level domain name servers within China. So if anybody wants to put in a name, it goes to a top-level domain name server within China, and then they get, they get the translation to the digital address there, so they can be self-contained. China wanted to create a situation where they could cut themselves off from the rest of the world and still operate. Now, the second thing that uh, that an Internet needs is that you need to have a uniform naming system and a uniform numbering system. You can't have two addresses that are the same on the Internet. It can, you, you don't know where to send it. So... There is the uh, ICANN, which is the Internet Commission on uh, Naming and Numbering. And that sets up a system where certain IP addresses are assigned to different countries. Uh, We only have one domain name allowed. And China, even though they want to be able to have a separate deal. They are apparently following the ICANN standards. They're not creating rogue IP addresses. They're not trying to create rogue um, um, domain names. So they are maintaining the standards of the domain name system. They just want to have a separate domain name system so they could cut themselves off if they would want to. Uh, You know... The Internet Society does not like what China is doing because they don't like the restriction on Internet at all. They want the Internet to be apolitical. They don't like politicians getting involved with it. Now this came up recently in the case of Russia because now Russia wants to create their own their own walled garden of the Internet. They were talking about cutting off cutting off Russia from the rest of the world so they could operate their own Internet. I know Zelensky and Ukraine has has told the West that we should cut Russia off from the Internet. And I'm really opposed to this, because I think the Internet, because it gives access to information to the general public, does more good than bad. And the general public has tools that they can work around to get information. So the young people who know how to use VPNs in China, they're getting, they're getting the truth from the Western news sources. The older folks that don't know how to use VPN aren't tech savvy. They just have state television. They're, they're getting the state television propaganda. But I think on, on general, uh, having, an open, having an open Internet is, 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 better, is better for the world. But I started thinking about this, breaking up the Internet into individual pods like the Chinese pod and the Russian pod is really bad for humanity. And I think the um, the long-term benefit to humanity is to have an open Internet that everybody can use. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I
0: was going to ask you if, if these uh, repressive governments like China and Russia – Um, Do they have ways of – are they getting ways of blocking the use of VPNs in the first place? Do they have – are there any tools out there for that?
2: Yeah, you can – what it is, it's like a cat and mouse game. They can identify – because a VPN server has a particular IP address. So they could – so what I found, like, uh, you know, I'd like to use a server in Sweden. The Chinese had discovered that server, so they blocked that IP address. I, I had a list of about 20 or 30 VPN addresses that I would go to. So they, they, they can't block them. Uh, and then if I would use an unencrypted, if I used an unencrypted VPN, uh, I could only use that unencrypted VPN for about uh, a few minutes because they were actually eavesdropping on my, uh, on my communication channel and they could tell what I was doing and they blocked me. If I used an encrypted VPN, I could, I could continue a little bit longer. It's a cat-and-mouse game. You know, we're also using the, uh, the, the Onion router, which is a way to, you know, uh, one thing, like if you're a dissident in a country, you don't want, and you're doing something, like you're posting something through a VPN onto Wikipedia. You don't want the government to know where you're located. And so they have the Onion router, which basically goes through a series of cascaded VPNs so they can't tell where the original source came from and the uh, the onion router was developed at uh, at uh, nrl Na- naval research lab and it's 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 basically distributed by our defense department to people in these repressive countries and so the onion router is uh, is used so dissidents can get on the internet and their location can't be tracked but it's it's a cat and mouse game yeah they'll They'll discover one particular protocol, and then they'll block it, and then there'll be another protocol that comes out. And, I mean, and even, uh, <clears throat> even cell phones, you know, they're, they're tracking people's locations with cell phones. They infect them with malware and track their location. That's, that's a continuing problem. I mean, in fact, you know, if you look at, uh, at, um, at, yeah, at, um, at Putin, Putin does not carry a cell phone. Because he doesn't want anybody to know where he is, he only uses landlines. He doesn't wow. own a cell phone because it's so dangerous. In um, in uh, in the Ukraine uh, uh, war, uh, the uh, the base the baseline communications of the uh, the Russians was not very good, and a number of the generals started using their cell phones in order to communicate because the Russian communication was so bad. That's why the Ukrainians are able to kill so many generals because they're using cell phones.
0: Well, I actually read uh, just yesterday that – here's an irony, too. One of the first things they did – first of all, uh, Ukraine still has largely a 3G network. And the first thing they did, thinking they were being very smart and disrupting the country, was destroy the 3G network or undermine it severely as soon as they got into the country. However, their own encrypted communication system was also (laughs) based on 3G, which is why now they're using cell phones and the Ukrainian side is eavesdropping on them very, very well.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. And then, uh, and then, um, uh, Elon Musk sent over a lot of uh, base stations for his Starlink uh, uh, internet uh, service, and um, they're using Starlink over there. And it turns out the drones that they that, that they're, the the drones that they're that they're navigating to take out these tanks, the drones are using the Starlink internet access for guidance and there are and i mean he sent thousands of starlink base stations to ukraine so the russians were really unable to stop the communications i mean they they desperately wanted to stop zelensky from being able to give his daily zoom calls but he's got internet access probably through starlink so it's all it's all about communication i think what uh, what uh, what Russia's discovering is that is what Putin's discovering, you can't really it's very hard to just shut down communication in general. I mean they 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 tried to bring down these Viasat satellites because they figured, okay, Viasat is used in uh, for for internet connection in Ukraine, also in Europe. So what they did, Russia actually installed ma- malware on the Viasat system. They used uh, destructive uh, malware, which, which looked like a VPN filter. And on February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, all the Viasat terminals in Europe and Ukraine suddenly were knocked offline and inoperable. It also caused thousands of wind turbines in Germany to lose satellite connectivity and they, and they, uh, that they needed for remote uh, monitoring. Viasat blamed a poorly configured VPN appliance that allowed an intruder to access the trusted management segment of of the Viasat network. The broadband provider said this intruder then explored the internal network until they were able and, and discovered how they could instruct the subscriber modems to overwrite their flash storage which made them inoperable, and the only way to fix them is to do a factory reset. The destructive commands overwrote key data in the flash memory of the modems, rendered them useless. And they. uh, also some people think this may have been done with um, malware that was deployed uh, in the back end of the Viasat system. So Russia did try to knock out what they could in terms of the satellites up, but then, but now they replaced v- ViaSat with uh, with Starlink, so they're they were able to operate pretty well. This is all. This is pointing to the uh, importance of ubiquitous communication everywhere, and how we how we depend on it, how important it is.
0: And meanwhile, Russia's losing a lot of its uh, tech uh, talent, isn't it?
2: That's right. I mean, since this war started, over 70,000 computer specialists have left Russia. Uh, it's just in the last five weeks because, they, you know, these guys just want to do tech work. They don't, they don't want to be involved in a big war, and they don't want to be involved in—I mean, they can't get communication. They don't have access to the Internet. So— a lot of countries are saying, wow, we're, we're, get, we're getting a lot of tech cap- capacity coming in there, so a lot of countries are really looking forward to this. Now, Vladimir Putin noticed the brain drain, so he, he tried to reverse it by saying, look, if you're in the tech business, I won't charge you any income taxes between now and 2024 if you're in the information technology area. Uh, uh, but I don't think that's making. Yeah, any well,
0: difference. you know what? Because it, no taxes, but there's no guarantee you won't be jailed. So you yeah, know, I think that, exactly. I think that's an overriding concern right now. Exactly. So many relocated. Many
2: have relocated to Poland or the Baltic nations of Latvia or Lithuania. And, and
0: not just a few, Doc. I, it's, it, so one estimate has it up to seventy thousand computer specialists have left now since the war yeah, began.
2: It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. And, uh, and they're also going to countries where you don't even need visas like Armenia, Georgia, uh, and the former republics in Central Asia. Yeah,
0: I know somebody who moved to Bi- from uh, Moscow to Bishkek. Uh, the capital of the former Soviet Republic of Kyrgyzstan, and there's a whole bunch of people who are doing this. So they're either doing it in groups, like Microsoft actually evacuated some of its teams, wow. and other people are just doing this individually, just getting out as soon as they can to whatever place you know they can find, and then sort of regrouping where that wherever they are.
2: Yeah, this is this is going to have a long-term uh, long-term impact on Russia because they with this brain drain. I mean, bro- Russia has lost millions of less skilled laborers. Uh, before, but they but they haven't had this huge outflux of uh, of educated people in technology. It's going to have a huge huge impact. Now there's another there's another impact on the on the whole internet thing. You know, internet is is a way for people to communicate, uh, and so the question is, when you're on the internet, what what language do you use? Now the internet has primarily been English centric. That's where no matter what language you communicate, uh, whether it's whatever language, you end up using English on the internet. So English has become the lingua franca of the internet.
0: Yeah, Doc. I looked into so lingua franca is, is Latin. And I was sort of we were trying to figure out, you and I, what, what, why is that? Why are we saying that? And I was like, well, doesn't that just mean the French language? And essentially it does. But uh, the term came about – it is a very old term. It's like 1,000 years old. And the late Byzantine Empire you know, was trading all across the Mediterranean. So in the eastern part of the Mediterranean, say the Arabs, people were like using this mixed language of different terms from Greek and Slavic languages but also a lot of words from Western Europe – and so from the Arabic point of view, it was like, oh, you guys are, you know, using a lot of uh, Western European terms, you know, the language of the French, you guys are talking like French people. Of course, they weren't, but that was mm-hmm. the perception. So that's how it became lingua franca, the language of the Franks, the French people.
2: Oh, and so, yeah. that, and, and so I mean, everything on the, I mean, all, uh, you know, algorithms, computer programs are written in English. uh uh, and so it's all over the Internet. And so but what is happening that's really quite interesting is that artificial intelligence is allowing for immediate translation into another language. So we have the possibility that somebody could be in a uh, in a threaded discussion with someone and they could type in Chinese.
0: Yeah. You know, and who they does could be that?
2: Talking to somebody who's speaking French. And the Chinese is translated in real time into French.
0: Yeah, I I, I know that uh, the WeChat, which is kind of the Chinese uh, version of WhatsApp, is uh, is doing that where it's easy to communicate with a Chinese person. They'll be typing in Chinese. They flip it to whatever language you're speaking, and then you write back in yours, and they flip it back to uh, Chinese. It's really handy because those are such different languages.
2: Yeah, and so if, if we can go directly between between one language to another, then English is no longer needed as an intermediary, and so English may be replaced as a lingua franca of the, of the internet. I remember that uh, I was, uh, in fact, uh, when I went to Spain a while ago, I, I had Google Translate, and I had to buy some parts for a sale book, so I'd go to the parts store, and I would speak into my phone in English, it would translate it into Spanish, and I would show the guy what it said and then he would speak in Spanish and would translate it in English for me. And so we were able to communicate quite well, uh, even though, uh, even though I didn't speak, uh, didn't speak Spanish. So that was actually quite, quite the deal. Are we almost out of time? Yeah,
0: we are, Doc. We really are.
2: Oh, listen, we love your emails. Email us at stratford, uh, Uh, email us techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can and check out all of our programs on stratford.edu our health science programs uh, business programs computer science programs networking programs software engineering programs we got culinary and hospitality and when you find a program you like tell them that you heard about this that program on tech talk radio